We've been bringing you the stories of State Department employees who received this year's Data for Diplomacy Awards. My next guest was honored for changing the approach of the State Department's delegation to the United Nations in Geneva, specifically to the Human Rights Council. Jesse Lynch is Human Rights Officer for the U.S. Mission to the U.N. Delegation to the Human Rights Councils, and he joins me now. Mr. Lynch, good to have you with us. Uh, Good morning. I'm very happy to be here. Well, tell us exactly what this delegation does, how it relates to the Human Rights Council, and it sounds like a complicated apparatus here. So I'm here in Geneva. I work for the U.S. Mission to the United Nations um, and other international organizations in Geneva, which really serves a crucial role in advancing American values and interests on the international stage. And the U.S. Mission, its, its goal is really to promote human rights, address you know, more broadly global health initiatives, respond to humanitarian crises, and foster international cooperation, among many other things. The mission has a dedicated team of diplomats, subject matter experts, and support staff, really with the top-of-the-line expertise on all of these issues, all working together to uphold the commitments of multilateral diplomacy. Now, I work on the delegation to the Human Rights Council, and our specific roles and mission is to really shine spotlight on countries, the worst human rights records, but also to help improve human rights situations around the world. So we support those fighting injustice and tyranny. We champion the values of freedom and equality. And it's really through close collaboration with other partners and other diplomatic missions and civil society and non-governmental organizations that we really are able to advocate for human rights principles and defend the rights of all throughout the world. And how does this work day to day? I mean, do you go from the State Department location in Geneva to a place that is operated by the U.N. and sit down and argue with people from Cuba? Or what happens day to day there? A big part of our job is being outside of our office. We are meeting on a day-to-day basis with other delegations, so other countries' representatives here in Geneva. We're meeting with civil society, hearing their concerns. A part of that is sitting down in the halls of the United Nations and and negotiating on resolutions, on texts, that ultimately, we hope, will improve the situation of human rights for people around the world. And a part of that is having conversations, not only with countries that are are closely like-minded with us, but countries that we don't see eye-to-eye on on a lot of issues. But doing that here in the halls of the United Nations, a lot of the barriers and the walls are, are taken down, and they allow for the type of direct communication and dialogue to help us find consensus and ways forward on some issues that are, are quite difficult. Let's get to the data aspects of this, because it sounds like a lot of human relations, a lot of work with making sure that what you say aligns with administration or State Department policy, and that's you know, political type of work or human relations type of work. How does data come into all of this? And tell us more about the data project that you did. Absolutely. You might be wondering, where does data fit in? Data, there's there's so much data and information and the history of the United Nations on how countries operate in this space. And one of the things that we were curious about a couple of years ago is how can we look to the history of how countries vote? How can we look to the history of how countries approach certain issues and take that in and analyze it in a way to help us predict how countries will vote on a resolution that's going to come up next year on an issue related to freedom of expression, for example. How do we expect a country will form partnerships and coalitions that may try to counter our initiatives and things that we're trying to see take place in the Human Rights Council? We looked at what was the best way to to kind of pull this together. So we ended up looking at UN databases, uh, databases from NGOs that are online, 
And I identified a, a team of virtual interns that the State Department allows us to pull from, and some of those being students in the field of data science. And we were able to call nearly 6.3 million data points on how countries operate on nearly every human rights issue, every single country in the world. And we pulled it into a database and then really started to dig in and do some fun analysis to see if we can come up with some predictions. And what that allowed us to do is once we had all that data inside of a data set is to develop a platform to help give us live and changing analysis that allows us to predict voting patterns and behaviors of states, ultimately allow us to better form lobbying strategies when we're trying to pursue a certain resolution on an issue and to build partners and coalitions to help us achieve what we're looking to achieve. We're speaking with Jesse Lynch. He's human rights officer for the U.S. mission to the U.N. delegation to the Human Rights Council. So that's pretty interesting because the implication is that much as you think you might know a nation or its delegation or its point of view, it's a little more subtle than that, and you can't know for sure without some analytical tools how it might vote. That is to say, you can't assume anything about what another nation is going to do or say or think about a particular topic. Absolutely. And it's not just our delegation that's interested in this. Even when we're with our like-minded, with our partners, we're always questioning ourselves, like, what would this X country do if we were to present a resolution or a discussion on a topic that could be perceived as controversial? And no one seemed to have the data around to be able to back that up. And so we were quite proud to pull together a very powerful tool that allows us to harness the data in a way to make data-informed decisions. Sure. And there are things that are relatively non-controversial, even in the U.N. delegation to the Human Rights Council. For example, the situation in Sudan. Not too many people disagree that that's not good. But then there are a lot of issues where, like, say, the uh, Commission on Inquiry for Israel that goes on and on and on and on. There's a lot of controversy over that one, and it's justification and so forth. So you've got a range of things from, yeah, we all agree on this pretty much to, wait a minute, we're button heads on this all over the place. Fair to say? Yeah. It, the tool allows us to make decisions based on the data. So we are always asking ourselves, what does the data say? And certainly that may not always align with the policy options that are on the table, but it's one additional and new type of input that our policymakers have when they're making those key decisions that could have broad, cross-cutting implications. Well, would the data cause a change in the vote on a particular issue, or would it simply maybe inform the way the United States talks about it or frames it to other nations? The data wouldn't necessarily change the vote, but like uh, the latter point, yes, it could change the way that we approach talking about issues with partners. An example, last summer there was a resolution um, that dealt with discrimination against women and girls. And there were some countries who were seeking to roll back protections against women and girls. And the data allowed us to really predict which countries in that against column would likely be the biggest opponents. And we were able to then roll out targeting uh, lobbying strategies to try to lessen the impact of that counteroffensive. Interesting. And just to get back to the process here, you wanted to pull all of this data together and you used interns that were stateside. There's a lot of interns at the State Department and under different channels. Absolutely. This is a special program within the, the federal government, the Virtual Student Federal Service Internship Program. 
So they are college students, American college students from around the country that commit to working 10 to 15 hours a week. And I had a team of six uh, interns. Half of them were focused on poli-sci and half on data science. And so I brought them together to help us come up with innovative ways to interpret the data and to pull the data together in a way that was understandable. And what sort of program or application or algorithm did all of this analysis for you? The State Department, so this is an online platform that the State Department allows us to use. I will say that the Center for Data Analytics in Washington and the promotion that they have for fostering innovation was really driving force behind this and some of the tools that they flagged for us. It was a tool. They're tools that are easily accessible to, you know, the Microsoft Office platform. So nothing, not creating a new system, but using the systems that we have in order to allow us to accomplish this. And just tell us about yourself a little bit, how you came to the job you have now, a human rights officer. I don't know where that ranks in the hierarchy of State Department from, you know, diplomat to whatever. Where does that all fall and how did you get to where you are? So I am a foreign service officer, so a diplomat based here in Geneva. I've been here for a couple of years. My previous assignments have included Tel Aviv, Israel. I've uh, served in Cambodia and Phnom Penh, covering internal political issues and and also some human rights issues. I've served in Kuwait, doing consular work. And prior to the Foreign Service, I was a civil service in the State Department, focusing on a number of issues, mainly the Middle East. My educational background from university, focusing almost right after 9-11, was on Middle East studies and studying languages and studying Arabic. And I received a couple of government fellowships that took me to the Middle East, where I um, mastered the, the Arabic language, and it has opened up many opportunities uh, throughout the region to support our efforts. Well, fantastic. Jesse Lynch is a human rights officer for the U.S. mission to the U.N. delegation to the Human Rights Council and a recipient of one of this year's Data for Diplomacy Awards. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at 
numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me. And they keep me grounded. 
So I flew down and began to talk with him about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I happen to think so. Well, Dr. (laughs) David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time 
on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.